Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Out of the Blue. It is Sunday the 11th of November. It is Remembrance Day. Hopefully everyone has just taken their minute's silence. You're listening to Out of the Blue on 3CR 855 AM. You could also be listening online, digital radio, podcasting. There's a million and one ways. There's no excuse not to listen to us. Um, Today we're going to be talking about marine debris and we have a pretty exciting announcement. But first, a quick announcement from Freddie. We'd never do that, Freddie. Excellent. We're planning such a good time with you, Freddie. Come to the screening of Bohemian Rhapsody on Thursday, November the 8th from 6.30pm at Palace Westgarth Cinemas and have a real good time with Freddie Mercury and Queen. Tickets are 25 full. $20 concession online at 3cr.org.au or from the station, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. You can also call 94198377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. All right, so welcome to Out of the Blue. Today we have a special guest. We are joined by Heidi Taylor from Tangaroa Blue Foundation. Can you hear us? I can. Hello. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I know you are a veteran of the show. You've been on several times. Yep. Um, but for anyone who hasn't heard any of those shows, could you tell us a little bit about what Tangaroa Blue Foundation does? Absolutely. So we're a not-for-profit organisation that was formed in 2004. And we focus purely on both the removal and the prevention of marine debris. And we do that through a network that we call the Australian Marine Debris Initiative, which is basically a national network of communities, industry and government, all working on those two things. How do we get rid of what's already out there and how do we stop more stuff ending up into our oceans? Okay, that seems like a really tough job because, I mean, you see on Facebook from time to time those solutions where they're like, just put a net on the end of a stormwater drain. But it doesn't really address the problem of how the pollution's getting out there in the first place, does it? Absolutely. It's, for us, that's a little bit too late. We need to figure out exactly where it started from, and that's where we need to, um, to try and intercept it. So what was it that prompted the beginning of Tangaroa Blue Foundation? Well, I've been a scuba diving instructor for about 20 years, and um, I made my money out of the ocean, but I also spent every moment that I could 
in my leisure time in the ocean as well, whether it was going for a swim or a dive or, or just walking on the beach and just starting to see, you know, more and more plastics ending up in the environment and how they were impacting the wildlife that we were we were seeing under the water. And marine debris actually wasn't even really recognised as an issue back then. So we really wanted to do something about it. And luckily, I was surrounded um, in my community with people that were also connected with the ocean. And, and when we started to talk about doing some cleanup events where we actually collected data to try and understand the sources, we had such good community response um, that 14, 15 years later, we actually have a national program doing the same thing. That's absolutely fantastic because I know citizen science is very big these days, getting just average people out and about and involved. But how initially did you convince people that they should spend their time cleaning up somebody else's rubbish? Well, I guess people understood that this area um, that they, or this kind of type of environment where they spend time is, is, is something special to them. And we all have a responsibility. We all have an impact on this planet um, and we can choose to you know, reduce our impact. We can um, choose to make our impact positive. And the people that were surrounded by me made their living out of the ocean. They were fishermen, um, they were dive instructors or working in the dive industry, or they were people that were connected to the ocean through their leisure time, through surfing. And to make the environment better for those experiences, they, they really connected with being able to do something positive for that. Well, I guess they have a vested interest, don't they? I mean, if you're yeah, a scuba diving instructor, as you said, you, you want the place that you're exploring to be pristine and beautiful like you see in the movies. Oh, yeah. Nobody's going to pay to go diving with plastic bags. You just ask some of the dive operators in Bali at the moment. <laughs> oh, I've done some diving in Indonesia. I can tell you what, the plastic was horrific. Mm-hmm. Absolutely revolting. So in the beginning, how many people did you have helping you in those initial first cleanups? Look, originally it was just me, you know, my, my partner at the time, he'd go surfing and um, I, I was a runner. I'd go running on the beach and I'd always come back with armfuls of rubbish. I just couldn't walk past it. And um, initially it was just a really small, small personal effort. And then I had this idea in Western Australia, there's an area called the Cape to Cape, which is about three hours south of Perth. And it's about 150 kilometers. And I thought, what if we did a clean up between the Cape to Cape on a weekend and tried to get community involved? And on that, that first um, effort, we had over 100 people clean up 30 beaches on that, that section. Wow. And then we had, I know, another 35 people turn up two weeks later to the workshop to look at the data. You're um, kidding. That's fantastic. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. So what did you notice in those first cleanups? What was the main, I guess, guilty item that you uh, discovered along the beaches? Well, what we found was that closer to the beaches that had easy access, there was a lot more litter items. So there was beer cans and bottles, there was food wrappers, there were cigarette butts. Um, when we got to some of the more remote beaches, we had things impacting from offshore. So we had um, items from the commercial rock lobster industry. Um, we, we had a lot of items that had foreign writing on them. And in that area, the, com- the cargo ships uh, actually crossed very close to the coast. And we suspected that some of those items were actually coming from the cargo ship. So washing um, off the ship or illegal dumping from the ship? Probably a bit of both. Okay. Um, yeah, a, a, a bit of both. So um, there wasn't one one particular item that there was the biggest problem. Um, there was lots of, of different items. And one of the items that we were able to actually um, identify was some packing tape. And the blue and the clear packing tape that goes around cardboard boxes to keep, keep them um, together was actually identified by a commercial fisherman who was at the workshop. And he told us that that was um, identifying what tape was in the box for the rock lobster industry. 
So we thought, okay, well, maybe there's something we could do about this. And we, so we started to collect um, a lot more data. We had people in that workshop I, um, kind of adopt their local beach and collect more data. And we were able to then convince six years later the Minister of Fisheries that this was continually, uh, continually to be a big problem. And he actually banned plastic packing tape going on any recreational or commercial fishing vessel in the whole state of WA. So from that first workshop, we actually got legislative change. That's incredible because legislative change, as we know, takes a really long time. It does, but it proves that this process of citizen science data that's collected in a really robust manner can actually you know, inform policy change and industry change. And that's what we, we need to do if we're going to reduce what's flowing into our oceans. And do you think if you have positive results like that, where you've actually got a government saying, no, we're going to make changes, do you find that encourages more people to come and help you with your citizen science? Oh, 100%. And not only encourage more people, but keeps the people involved, involved. Because if all you do is go down to the beach and collect rubbish every week, eventually you get really tired of that and despondent and overwhelmed by this issue. But if you're part of a process that identifies an item and then is part of a solution that you can actually see on the beach that item occurring you know, in decreasing numbers, you're not a rubbish collector anymore. You're actually making changes happen and being part of the solution. So you get volunteers engaged for a longer period of time. And through that process, As I said, we've been able to expand this project across the whole country. We've had over 120,000 volunteering opportunities across Australia at almost 3,000 sites. So so it's it's amazing. And I guess the, the, the legacy of that is a database, a national database that we hold that has over 12 million data points that those data points can be used again and again and again to help inform, you know, policy change, education, awareness, and also monitor how these projects have actually impacted the levels of debris over time. And I guess that's true too. You need to show that the monitoring is having an impact over time, but it also gives people the chance to see that, you know, you always hear that saying, one person can make a difference. And sometimes it feels like that's just not true. Mm-hmm. But if you're a person who's, you know, collecting cigarette butts or collecting that packing tape and then there's a change and that packing tape is no longer being used, then I guess that one person really does make a difference. Oh, absolutely. The di- if you think about the legacy of a cleanup, it really is only until the next tide where more stuff can come in. So you've got six hours <laughs> and yeah, potentially true. not even that long if people are leaving, uh, you know, a litter on the beach. But it- if you collect that rubbish and you record the data, that data can be used indefinitely and it gives a much longer legacy to that effort that that person made. So with all the different cleanups around Australia, how is it that you're collecting this data? Is it simply counting the number of items of each, you know, in each category that you've got or is there more science to it than that? So the Australian Marine Debris Database has about 140 categories, which, which really sounds like a lot, but the majority of them are probably that we see all the time are probably 40 categories. And then we have, you know, things that you might find once or or actually never. Mm -hmm. But we want to have a category for everything that you could possibly find. Because then we start to identify holistically and and with really good detail um, a full picture of, of what marine debris means to a different site. So if you only collect certain items, you're not really recording the true picture. You're only recording what you've found. So mm-hmm. we, we wanted to have a category for everything. 
Um, and so from that, there's different ways you can input the data. So we have a downloadable PDF data sheet, which you can write on, um, which, you know, a lot of the old school crew really like their data sheets. Oh, of course. Um, they can input that into an online database through, through our website. And just recently, we've launched an app, which is available on both Android and Apple, which allows you to record the data as you go and even has features like um, a barcode scanner. Um, that you can record brand information. You're kidding. And, That's yes, incredible. It's so cool. So when you have a barcode, the first three numbers actually identify the country of manufacture. So we can kind of see where, where things are coming from. So with the data you've collected with the app, and I know it's relatively new, but is there any particular country that seems to be a, a bigger polluter than others? Mm, or any particular at- company? When you look around Australia, different different places are impacted. So if you go to Cape York and you go to the East Coast, mm-hmm. we actually get a lot of stuff coming over from the Pacific Islands that come on the current. Okay. Um, but if you go to the West uh, Coast of Cape York, predominantly it's from Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to the southwest corner of WA and some of the areas on southern the southern coast of Victoria, um, we actually get a lot of Chinese, Philippines, Malaysian, and that stuff is actually um, coming from cargo ships and, and fishing vessels. Yeah, I was about to say those countries aren't exactly close to the southern coast of Australia. Oh, that's right. And when they come there with a uh, you know a label on them and they look brand new, you know they haven't floated. <laughs> yeah, no, potentially not. So do you work with other cleanup groups around Australia to try and build that database of marine debris? Yeah, absolutely. So we tried to create that, the Australian Marine Debris Initiative as a platform that any group that is doing cleanups can contribute to. So we work with um, all the coast care groups. We, we work with a lot of um, other organisations that are, you know, all been doing cleanups um, and, and just, you know, been doing this for a really long time. And, and all we're just trying to do is say, look, if you can take that extra step to collect data and if we can all collect data using the same methodology, not only can you use that data at a really local level, but we can use it at a state level, at a national level, and even at an international level, so it's scalable. But if we're all going out there collecting data using all different methodologies, then we start we, we find a real problem to, to scale that data up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've had um, Nico from Scab Duty on a few times on the show now, and they do lots of cleanups around Williamstown, and they were discovering parking tickets mm-hmm. were quite prevalent. They were coming down the Yarra. Um, but some of the, the councils that those parking tickets were coming from were a really, really long way away. And so that's what they began to focus on, and they could write to those councils and say, well, this ticket clearly came from your area. Why are you having this really durable plastic-based parking ticket? So it really just starts that conversation. Absolutely. And if you recorded it just as a piece of plastic, you wouldn't have that understanding. If you recorded it as a parking ticket, you might not have that understanding. But if you record it as a parking ticket and actually take a note of where it's from, then we can start to go back to exactly where the source is. And that's why that level of data is so important if we actually want to stop it at the source. And, you know, Nico's been a great supporter of ours for lots of years and has been inputting the data through through this AMD platform as well. But that's a prime example of how the level of data changes from being just recording data as far as cleanup goes to actually being able to identify source. Yeah, definitely. Now, there is some exciting news we are going to announce. Would you like to announce it live on air for us today? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Very absolutely. exciting. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, Tangaroa Blue has been successful in a tender that came out through the Department of Environment and Energy, so the federal federal department, to run a five-year program addressing marine debris across um, the Great Barrier Reef. It's um, it's a five million dollar project, which is that very is significant astounding. That is incredible. Congratulations. Absolutely. Um, it's a million dollars a year, which is great. But, I mean, if you think about how big the Great Barrier Reef is... It is quite a large <laughs> area, yes. Yeah, we still have to be very careful in, in where we, you know, want to... or where we can, um, you know, u- utilise that funding because we need to be doing stuff across the entire um, Great Barrier Reef region. Um, and we want to be doing things that are not just, as we mentioned, cleaning up. Mm-hmm. We want to do those cleanups. We want to have strategic monitoring sites. Um, but we also need to do the education, the awareness, the source reduction plan workshops and, and projects and the engagement side of things just as much. Um, so we've been working with, with partners and one of our major partners will be Conservation Volunteers Australia mm-hmm. um, who have a great network, but also other AMD partners who have been working a really um, a lot in their local areas who can help us roll this out as well. So we're, we're super excited. Um, we think it's a great you know, initial step to, to long-term investment in this project. And it gives us a lot of certainty in what we can achieve over the next five years in the region. And I guess at the moment too, the Great Barrier Reef is getting so much, um, uh, I guess, media attention because of climate change. So the reef is already under threat. But then what you're talking about is not just being reactive and cleaning up the reef, but also being proactive and really getting to the source of why is that litter getting there in the first place? Exactly. And, you know, look, some of it's coming from overseas and, that, and that's hard for a local community to address. But through our work with um, the federal government and also through the United Nations um, Sustainable Development Goals, we can have those, uh, those conversations at, a, at an international level. But there's so much that local communities can do about what's, what's actually flowing out of their, their area. And that's why the data being scalable means that we have evidence that we can do stuff at a local scale but we can also contribute to stuff that's at a regional and a state, national and international scale. And that's why everybody can contribute. That's so true. I mean, people can always go, oh, it's not our problem. The lid is washing in from somewhere else. But I mean, your data would be easily able to prove that that's not the case. There is definitely still pollution coming from the home front. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we, we work with communities up in Cape York where the data shows that up to 94% of the rubbish on the beach actually comes from somewhere else. And wow. those guys are like, so what, what should we do? And, and we're like, you should focus on the 6% that's coming from your community. Because that's and if the you bit can you can tackle ad- that. Yeah, you can address exactly that. Right. Yeah, and by, by collecting data and feeding it into the national database, that means that we can help you address what's coming from overseas with, with the relevant stakeholders, you know, further up the chain with, with the federal government and the international um, connections. But we still need everybody to acknowledge that we all have an impact. So we should be doing what we can as well as contributing to the bigger picture. I can imagine that could be really disheartening for some people going, I'm cleaning up this beach week in, week out, and only 6% of it is coming from my community. Absolutely. But, you know, a lot of those um, clean-up events that we've been doing with the Indigenous communities in the, in the Cape, we've actually been able to show that over time it, it is decreasing because we've got rid of so much of the backload. And it's changed the conversation um, within the community and also, you know, helped to address those those local litter issues. Because if you see a place that is completely full of rubbish, 
you know, it's no problems to throw another piece on. What does it matter? Of course. But if you see a huge amount of effort gone to remove that and it's a consistent effort that happens really regularly and the community gets involved, then there starts to be this shift in, well, I'm actually not going to add any more there because I, I know the effort that it takes to remove it all. And and that can be a real power, uh, like a, a, a real powerful um connection to, to the country up there too. So if those communities have been doing these cleanups for a while up in northern Australia, are they noticing changes to the local environment? I mean, I think about, I guess, turtles, for example. They need to come up a beach to nest. If the beach is covered in plastic, it really inhibits what they can do. Are they noticing any changes? Oh, look, completely. And I guess one of the one of the, the most shocking examples that we saw was um, actually out on Christmas Island in the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. where Christmas Island, it comes out of really deep water, it's very cliffy, and there's only very small coves of beach um, that the turtles can actually come up and nest. And we've seen turtles come up and try and dig a nest through polystyrene and plastic oh. and just turn around and, and, and leave because they can't. Oh, and any tragic. of those turtles that can actually lay the nest are then covering the nest with with the sand that's just full of plastic, which actually um, traps a lot of the, the hatchlings under the sand and they can't actually make it to the surface. So, you know, out of a, a clutch of maybe 100 um, hatchlings, only about a quarter of them are actually making it to the surface. Oh, that's so sad. Mm. All because of human plastic. Yeah, and because we keep using way too much of it and disposing of it really badly. <laughs> Do you think it's because plastic doesn't have a perceived value? Look, I think that's absolutely part of it. I think that also part of it is that if we look at third world countries, um, waste management is not a high priority. Um, You know, feeding people's families is a priority. Of course. And if we think about what people have been eating, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, it was organic. And if you threw an oyster shell or a banana leaf on the ground, it was not a problem because it biodegraded. Um, but now we're using that same action, but what we're throwing is an item that doesn't biodegrade and it, and it remains in the environment forever. Um, and the infrastructure around those communities hasn't improved. So, you know, even in Cape York, you've got um, landfills for the community that get burnt or buried when they're full. There's no recycling up there. It costs mm. way too much to bring the stuff back down to Melbourne or to Sydney to, to recycle. So, you know, we've started using this material that, you know, we can't do anything with. Um, because we haven't, you know, built infrastructure around using that material either. With the communities you've been working with, with the cleanups, are you noticing positive change, changes in the community? For example, banning plastic bags or paper straws over plastic. Are you noticing like on-flowing effects from the cleanup? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. A lot of the um, the stores up there now use paper bags. Um, Sometimes that's a bit of a problem in the wet season when it's oh, torrential of rain. Yeah, oh yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> or when it's like Melbourne where you don't know what weather you're going to get. You're going to get, totally. So providing alternatives, um, you know, boxes, being able to use the boxes that everything gets transported in. So so there is a shift and, and I guess it's important for local councils and, and, you know, other government agencies to lead by example because um, that has a really strong flow through through the community. A lot of the schools have junior ranger programs and so they're involved to the cleanups too. So that kind of feeds that information mm-hmm. back up into the community. And, um, you know, I, th- I think that that's the main thing is, is being able to provide the information so the communities can choose what's going to work best for them. And, um, and also, you know, in most of these small communities, there's only really one or two supermarkets. So it's not like having to change 100 
um, shopping shops in in a in a community. You you really need to only engage the community in two stores to make these big changes. You're right, because one size doesn't fit all. Every community is different. Every community will have its own focus. You can't just come up with a blanket solution for everybody. Yeah, it, it's true. And if you want um, solutions and changes, behaviour change to have an ongoing effect and, and not just a, a you know an initial fad, you need buy-in from the community. And the only way that you get that is, is by consulting with them and letting them decide what's going to work best. And I mean, that, that happens in business um, communities as, as well as, you know, living communities, and government communities. There but needs to be to that have sense of ownership. Goal. Absolutely. But we need to have a common goal and we need to understand that, that why we're doing this is to reach this goal um, and then people can take their own path. And with a common goal, you can have pooled resources so that you're not all having to reinvent the wheel every time you try and do something. Yeah, and look, we've been doing resource reduction plan workshops across Port Phillip Bay over the last couple of years. And, you know, one of the things that we've we've done through these is each of the communities have developed a, a, a project to address an item that they were finding in their environment. Mm-hmm. And we've shared those projects with communities that are just beginning this process. And we've had the community, for example, in the Mornington Shire ring the community in the city of Port Phillip and say, we want to do a straw project too. How did you do it? What did you learn? Fantastic. And they've been able to implement it there. So that's really cool. It's the sharing of knowledge and learning that can, can stop that duplication and also um, kind of reduce the errors that, that we make. You know, if everyone tried the same thing and it failed 15 times, oh, yeah. well, you know, we want to share that as well as the successes. Of course, of course. Now, we're almost out of time, but in a nutshell, you've just been given $5 million for five years. What would be your ultimate conclusion? What do you want to see at the end of those five years? Wow, that's a question. Well, look, I guess... <laughs> You're still, I, still I, surprised <laughs> with the fact that you've got $5 million, so... <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I guess the thing is that we know that on the 1st of July in 2023, when the project is done and mm-hmm. the funding is done, um, if internationally we haven't moved to a space where we've really reduced our plastic use, we're still going to have a marine debris problem. Mm-hmm. So we need to make, that, make sure that this has legacy, that... It's a self-sustaining project after five years. It just doesn't stop and go away. But the capacity that we've built in communities enables it to continue because we're most likely still going to have a marine debris problem. Of course. But we want to have a really strong database that can be used as evidence into the future. We want to have an educated, um, aware community that understands why changes that they need to make in their daily life is important and how far-reaching that that can be. Um, and we want to have a government that has made policy change, like plastic bag bans and container refund schemes, that, that can actually make a big difference on a, you know, on a big industry scale. We need buy-in from everybody. Um, this problem is not going to go away because our population keeps to, to grow and we keep using more stuff. So we really need a, a strong platform that we can keep building this project on. Well, we wish you all the best of luck from the Out of the Blue team. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today. No worries. Thank you so um, much for inviting me back. (laughs) I'm sure we'll have you on more in the next five years to find out how it's all going. Thank you so much. Well, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of Out of the Blue for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. And up next is Sally with Out of the Pan. So enjoy your Sunday.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.